Well, hello, everybody. I am Stephen, as everybody calls me in New England. Like, I introduce myself as Stephen, and everybody says, hey, Steve. It's like Google Translate right there. I'm no longer Stephen. Um, what a special moment. What I love about that moment is, as Sean is praying, is there's like an added little children's choir on stage of little cries and like kids like talking and stuff because they're trying to figure out what's going on. Very sweet. I love it. Um, well, hey guys, Merry Christmas. It is officially Christmas season. We're in, uh, we are in a Christmas series right now called Christmas Stories. Um, I love Christmas for so many reasons. I love that it's snowing outside. Uh, I just moved from Texas where it snowed for the first time in like 14 years this past week, and that's actually not a joke. It really did. They freaked out and they closed down schools because of an inch of snow. <laughs> not kidding. Uh, like 100 posts about snow in Texas for one inch. Here it snows six inches, not a single post because you're used to it and you're stronger than Texans. So congratulations. Um, so, yeah, give yourselves a round of applause, I guess. You beat Texas. Um, I am planting the third, what will be the third location of Grace Church in Bridgewater uh, next fall. We are starting our second location in Braintree in the spring, and then we are starting our third location in Bridgewater in the fall. So, in 2018, Grace Church will go f- uh, from being at one church in one location to being a family of churches in three locations. How exciting is that? That's awesome. It's really an exciting time. Um, We just moved to Bridgewater. We just closed on our house this past week. So we are so, so excited to be um, down in the town that we feel the Lord has called us to raise our family. Um, One of the things that I love about Christmas is Christmas actually holds a very special place in my heart, not just for spiritual reasons, but I actually put out my own Christmas album. Um, And don't say wow until you hear the rest of the story. Um, So uh, I grew up in Nashville. My dad is a musician. My brother is an audio technician, which means he records music, and um, even though I'm the least musical in my family, I'm the only one that has put out my own Christmas album. Here's a picture from my Christmas spread right here. (laughs) That was taken last week. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, When I was in college, um, I was dared to put out a Christmas whistling album. I am the best whistler you will ever meet. And inevitably, somebody in this room after service is going to come and find me and say, I'm a better whistler. Just stop, because you're wrong. I'm a better whistler. If I pursued that, I could be on Jimmy Fallon in about two weeks if I wanted to. I just don't want to, okay? So I put out a Christmas whistling album. I sold it through my church youth group to raise money for a ministry called Bloodwater Mission. We sold like 300 copies. Um, So I'm huge in the Christmas whistling scene. Um... (laughs) I've been on the radio for my Christmas album. My name is Whistling Steve. You can find me on MySpace. My album is called Kiss Me Under the Whistletoe. Um, I would love to, um, to give you a sample from a single that I wrote called Away in a Manger. I wrote this. I'm just gonna do a snippet because it's whistling. It's not that entertaining. I need total silence, please. Oh, I smile while I whistle. All right, that's all I'm going to do. 
All right. I had to do that because that's a special place in my heart, but let's try to compartmentalize that moment and move into the Bible. Um, I just want you to think for a second, what if you were known for the biggest mistake that you ever made? Like how you laugh at that. That wasn't supposed to be funny. Okay. Um, what if you were honestly known for the biggest mistake that you ever made? Not that that's what defines you, but that's what like most people knew you as. Some of you can think of a person or a celebrity or a sports figure, and like when you think of that person, you don't think of their career or their life's work. You think of one like five or ten second moment, something that they did. And unfortunately, that person to you is known by one thing, by one mistake. There's people like Bill Buckner, that that's what people know. There's groans in the room. Even though he had an entire career as a baseball player with different teams, including the Red Sox, he's known for one mistake. Um, has anybody here ever heard the name Steve Bartman? Some of you guys know him, and some of you immediately know why he, has no, he is known in baseball culture. It's for one mistake. He never played baseball. He was a baseball fan. And in 2003, um, as a hardcore Cubs fan, um, this was before the Cubs won the World Series, and there was all that angst that they would never win another World Series, that they were cursed. And uh, he went to Game 6 of the NLCS, so they were two games away from making it to the World Series. They were up three to nothing, and then this moment happened. moment? Some of you guys, it was 14 years ago, but a lot of people still remember the name Steve Bartman for one 10-second moment of his life. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even call it necessarily a mistake, but it just unfortunately played out that the Cubs ended up losing that game, and they pointed to that as, as like the turning point um, for why they lost that game. And the next 48 hours, Steve Bartman uh, had thousands of death threats from Cubs fans uh, at his home and at his work. He had to change his phone number. He had to quit his job. He had to move to Florida. And the governor of Illinois actually put out a statement like a week after this happened asking for the citizens of Illinois to leave him alone. And even to this day, when people hear that name Steve Bartman, they don't think of his career or his family. Many people think of that one thing that he did. The silver lining on the story is last year when the Cubs did win the World Series, the organization presented him with a World Series ring because they didn't want him to live in shame the rest of his life, and they felt so bad about it, so they found him and they gave him a World Series ring. So it has a cool end to the story, but still, most people think of him for that one incident. And tonight, I want to look at, or this morning, I want to look at um, one particular uh, scripture that is very familiar with us. It's the most familiar portion of the Jesus story, the nativity story in Luke chapter 2, but I want to look at it through an unfamiliar lens. I want to look at it through one person who was there who has gone down in history 
for making the biggest mistake of his life. And most people, when they think of this particular person, all they really know is the one mistake that he made. Because I think we can learn from that, because I think his story in many ways is our own story and how we interact with Jesus. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to continue on in the story. Last week, Sean um, started this series by looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth and how they eventually gave birth to John, as we know him as John the Baptist, who paved the way for Jesus. And that really was the beginning of the Christmas story. And today we continue on in Luke chapter 2. Luke is one of the Gospels. There's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I say Gospel, it's one of the accounts of Jesus' life, told by four different people um, for four different reasons. And so just as if four of you were to write uh, the story of my life, it would have different highlights based on your personality and, and what your purpose is. Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, and his main purpose for writing this gospel was he wanted to create a very detailed historical account of Jesus' life, because he wanted thousands of years later for us to be able to specifically pinpoint how Jesus fit into the history of mankind. And so as we read Jesus' story, we see so many specific details in the Gospel of Luke, and that's because he's trying to help us see the history of Jesus' life. There's over 15,000 historical sources that prove Jesus' existence, and Luke is one of the most prominent. So as we look at it, notice the very specific historical detail puts in, because none of it's there by accident. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 2. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who is now expecting a child. And so Caesar Augustus put out a census. And it was different than a census that we would think of today, where all you have to do is fill something out and mail it in based on where you live and who lives in your house and ages and those kind of things. This, you actually had to go back. He, he mandated that all families go back to where their ancestors from, where their ancestral line um, was founded, and he had to do the census there. And so what you had is a very busy travel time as families are all having to travel back to where their ancestors were ri- originally from. And so keep that detail in mind because that's about to come into play. Um, the reason that Luke is putting all of this detail about the governor, like who was, who was, the, who was the governor then, is because he wants us to be able to pinpoint the exact moment that Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world at a very specific moment. And it was, it was very intentional because Jesus was born during the most powerful, corrupt government in the history of the world with Caesar Augustus. And we're going to learn more about that in a few weeks on Christmas Eve when Sean talks about King Herod and, and the power that Jesus came into because there's, there's so much significance in knowing that God entered the world at that particular point. No one had ever been more powerful than Augustus Caesar. And even though Jesus was the only person in the world with more power and authority than Caesar, he chooses to enter the world in the poorest fashion. There's so much power in that. From the first moment of Jesus' life, he was modeling the life of a servant for us, of what he calls us to be as his followers. The story goes on. 
While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them in the inn. So as they're traveling, they come to an inn. And naturally, it's booked up because, again, this is a busy travel time. Because of the census, you had families that were traveling to Bethlehem. You had some that may have been traveling through Bethlehem. And this inn that may have not normally been all booked up was. And so when Joseph and nine-month pregnant Mary come to the innkeeper to ask for room, he doesn't care to make room for them because business is good. Every room is full. He doesn't need to make room for them. He's probably busier than normal. And so he says that they can go around back. And, and we don't know a, a ton of the specific details. It's, a lot of people believe he was born in like a stable, um, but with the terrain of Bethlehem, because it was so rocky, it may have actually been more likely that uh, Jesus, like that stable wasn't necessarily like a wooden barn as we think of it. It may have actually been closer to like a cave, because that was very common in Bethlehem because of the terrain, and that's the best shelter that people could park like their wagons and their animals while they slept. So it's very possible that the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, our Messiah, came and was born in a cold, wet cave in a wooden manger because there was no room in the inn. And I just want to take a moment and think. A lot of times in the story, we focus on Joseph and Mary and Jesus. But what about the innkeeper? We don't know the innkeeper's name. We don't really know the innkeeper's story, but we know that the innkeeper growing up in that area would have grown up in a Jewish family and in a Jewish school, which means every day of his life, he would have heard and studied the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. And he would have heard over and over and over again that a Messiah was coming, that God was sending somebody to save all people that a Messiah was coming. In fact, there were specific scriptures that even said that a Messiah was coming to Bethlehem. Like he lived in the town, that it was prophesied that a Messiah was eventually going to come. And, and just imagine going down in history as the Jew that turned away the Messiah. The Jew that had the Messiah show up at your inn, like you could throw the ultimate birthday party, coming home party for Jesus, the Messiah, the person, the king that your family for centuries and centuries and centuries had been waiting for, and he showed up at your doorstep on his birth night, and you told him to go around back. You didn't make space for him because business was good, you were sold out, you didn't need him. Like God was right there. Right in front of them, God has made his interest in the world, entrance into the world, and he didn't even realize it. He looked past him. And I think of that, and I wonder how many times that's our story, where we don't make room for Jesus, even when he's right in front of us. And all he's asking for is space in our lives, but, but we don't give it to him because life is good without him. Like, business is good. We can do things on our own. And I think there's a daily struggle for us to really recognize that we really need God because we can kind of figure it out on our own. And even though Jesus is right in front of us and just saying, I just want space in your life, we don't make it for him. I know that was my, that was my story. Like I grew up in church in, in Tennessee and I never really liked it as a kid. I went to a church that, to me, it was just kind of boring. I didn't like going on Sundays. It was just something that I had to get through so that I could... Um, get through with the rest of my week. My parents kind of made me go, and, and I 
just never really engaged with it. In fact, as I got a little bit older in middle school, I actually started to pray on Saturday nights when I went to bed that God would make me sick enough that I could skip church the next day. And he never answered that prayer. And I, I, I specifically said, God, just make me sick for like an hour because I still want to watch football in the afternoon, but just like sick enough to where my parents can say I can stay home because I really didn't want to go to church. I had no connection with God. I had no relationship with God. Like I believed in him. I believed Jesus was there. I was never like walking around like doubting and, and saying that I, I hated God. But then as I got older... As I got into high school, I started to wonder if God was really there. And my biggest prayer request, I would say, okay, God, if you're really there, then all I'm asking for is will you give me a best friend? Because as I entered high school, I just started to get really lonely. Like I looked around at people around me, and they kind of had these best friendships, and I never did. Like I watched a lot of Boy Meets World back then. I don't know if you guys ever watched that show, but there's like, it's all centered around this best friendship of Corey and Sean who have been like best friends since they were four years old, and they never had to worry about like on Friday nights if they had someone to hang out with because they were always together. I always wanted to have a friendship like that. So I said, God, just give me that one friend that will be there for me. And I prayed that freshman year, and freshman year came and went, and I, I never got that friend. So I started to just get more upset at God, and I thought he's just kind of forgetting about me. And sophomore year, and I kept praying, like, God, can you give me that friend? And sophomore year came and went, and I never got that friend. And by the end of sophomore year, uh, somebody in my church asked me if I wanted to go on a mission trip to Puerto Rico. And I was the guy, like, I showed up on Sundays, but, like, I never went to a camp. I never went to, like, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. Because I thought, if you're going to force me to be here for an hour, why would I come back? You're crazy. Like, I had people in there that, like, they'd go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. I'm like, dude, you don't have to do this. What are you doing to yourself? <laughs> I, I just didn't like it. And so I, I kind of on a whim said, yeah, I'll go on this mission trip to Puerto Rico. I didn't really know anybody on the trip, but I kind of felt like maybe this is it. Maybe if, if I go on this trip for a week, God will answer my prayer. This is the deal in my mind that I was making. So I go on this trip, and during the day, they had us build houses for poor people. And when we got there and I found that out, I was thinking, you're going to let me build a house for a poor Like, I am so not qualified to do this. I can't even build a bookcase. And you're going to allow me to build a house that, like, a family's going to live in? Like, I was really nervous as I'd hammer nails. I'm thinking, people are going to live in this house? I have no idea what I'm even... I don't even know if I'd trust myself to build a house for, like, guinea pigs but you're going to let human beings live in it? And so, thankfully, there was a contractor there that basically just took out all of the nails and, and re-nailed them to make sure that this family didn't die immediately. And we'd do that during the day, and then at night, we'd have this huge, like, church service, basically, like in an outdoor pavilion. And it was probably about this size, like, of the room. The difference was it had a big roof, but all of the walls were just open, and there was a beautiful... Puerto Rican beach, like right next to us, that you could just hear the waves crashing as we're having this church service. And there were hundreds of teenagers from all over the country that came for this, this mission trip. And it was, it was kind of this cool moment, but as it started and like I looked around, I, I noticed how out of place I felt because I looked around and I saw that while I'm singing these songs and I'm like reading the lyrics off the screens, the students in my row and in the row in front of me and behind me, like, they're like worshiping. 
Like I'm singing and they're like worshiping. They're like raising their hands and they're like so passionate. Like to them, this is like their, their heart anthem. They're like crying. They don't even have to like look at the screens. I'm like, when did you guys, did you guys get together and memorize all these songs before? I don't know any of these songs. Like they were so into it and all it caused me to feel was like God had forgotten about me even more. Because it's like, I'm standing right here, God, and everybody around you feels, like, around me feels close to you, and I'm just, like, singing a song. And one night after this worship service, we went out to the beach, and my little youth group, like, we sat in the sand, just us, and our youth pastor just kind of told us, he said, hey, guys, we just want to have an open time of prayer, a time for you guys to just, if you want to spend some time with God, you can, no big deal if you don't. You can stay as long as you want, but just, um, just come face-to-face with God. And I, like, I did that as best as I knew how. I'd heard that praying is kind of like writing a letter to God. It's, it's not anything magical. It's just talking to God. And so I just sat in the sand by myself. And like one by one, I'd see some people kind of get up and leave at different times. But I just kind of said, you know what, I've got, I've got nothing going on. I'm just going to sit here and... And I just realized as I'm looking out at these waves crashing that I had so much anger and frustration. And I'm just thinking, like, God, why, why do you forget about me? Why don't you answer my prayers? All I ask for is a best friend. I just want to feel close to you. And it's like everybody around me feels close to you. And it's like you skipped over me. And in that moment, I just became so emotional like I never had before to the point where 14 years later, I can still recount it so specifically because I remember God, like not audibly, but just like clearly, I, like I'm hearing in my mind him saying, I didn't forget about you. You forgot about me. You've never made space for me. You expect that if you show up for an hour on Sunday, you're going to have this close relationship with me. That's not how it works. I want to have a relationship with you, just like you would with a family member or a friend. Like, if you, if you only talk to a friend for a few minutes a week, you're not going to feel close to him. And, like, God is connecting these dots in my head, and I'm, like, I just begin to cry. And, like, as a high school boy, I'm like, I'm not supposed to cry like this, but at least I'm in another country. Like, I'm weeping because I'm realizing for the first time in my life that the reason I didn't feel close to God is because I never made space for God. I always sent him around back. I just thought God was this genie that answered my prayers. I didn't think he was supposed to have a relationship with me. I thought that was his job to build that, not mine. Like that night on the beach, June 12, 2003, God rescued me from my sin. And I began my journey with Jesus. And I think of that story, and I wonder how many of that is our story. Like, how many people in this room may have that same frustration? Where we're frustrated at God, and it's not necessarily because of anything God's done. It's because of what we haven't done. Because we're kind of the innkeeper in the story, that God's right there in front of us, but we just don't make space for him. Even those of us that have been following Jesus for years and years, you can feel that same frustration because Jesus is saying, I want more space. I want more real estate in your heart because you've just kind of given me the guest room. I want your whole heart. So that's the innkeeper. And what's so cool about this story is as we read on, there's like an opposite response from another group of people. 
that they hear about God and they respond in the complete opposite way. So verse 8, it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Imagine these shepherds, which is not a coveted job. Like no one grew up saying, I really hope I can be a shepherd and I can work in the middle of the night when the sheep are just kind of sitting there and sleeping and pooping like that would be my life's calling. No one really wanted to do that. But God chose these shepherds as the first to hear that the Messiah had arrived. And I imagine they're hearing this and they're thinking, wow, the Messiah, like they were Jewish too. And so for hundreds of years, their families had heard, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And so they're waiting and waiting. And then they get to be the first ones to hear that God is here. And then it goes on and it, it says, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. I love this part. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others. It's like a choir just pops up. The armies of heaven praising God and saying glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. It's like this moment is so big that they bring in this choir so that the shepherds can see the magnitude of what has happened. A choir of angels. Like some of you have been told by your boyfriend that you sing like an angel. Like this is an actual choir of angels that has shown up because this moment is so big. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about this child. Just imagine being a shepherd and like, you're looking at the God of the universe like as a baby right in front of you. And your whole life, you grew up hearing a Messiah was coming, a Messiah was coming, a Messiah was coming. And they probably started to just doubt it because the Messiah had not come. And they got to be the ones to hear and to see God of the universe in flesh right in front of them. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. I love that, I love that their response when they hear that God is here is let's go share with others. Because that's the pattern of the gospel, is God shares so that we can share with others. God rescues us from our sin so that we can rescue others from their sin. Like, I was on a, a flight just two weeks ago, coming back. We spent Thanksgiving on the beach in Alabama this year. Our family did. We do that every year. And um, as we're getting on the flight, 
they always go over like the safety precautions and um, you, you mostly kind of tune it out if you fly a lot because you just have heard it so many times. But I'm sitting next to my two-year-old, and whenever you have a young child, they like reiterate it with you as if you don't hear it the first time. And so like this Alabama stewardess comes up. She's like, okay, now your daughter, you got to make sure that you put your life jacket on first, and then you put your daughter's on. Because in case of a water landing... You need to make sure you're okay. And I'm thinking, we're flying from Alabama to Boston. What water would we hit? <laughs> if we hit anything, it's Earth, and we're done. <laughs> I didn't say this because I was sitting next to my two-year-old. But the concept is you have to make sure you're rescued so that you can rescue the people around you. That's the gospel. God rescues us so that we can rescue the people around us. See, a lot of people think that God saves us so that we can sit, but that's not true. God saves us so that he can send us out. Like everything in the gospel points back to mission. There is no such thing as discipleship and spiritual growth without mission. Discipleship is mission. And that's what I love is that that's modeled with the shepherds. Like the very first thing they do when they find out that God is here is they don't say, let's go study the scripture together. No, they say, let's go tell others about it because that is the gospel. See, the innkeeper's response to God was that he didn't need anything from God. He didn't need his business. The shepherd's response to God was that they didn't have anything to offer him. So they said, yes, we're just shepherds. What do we have to offer you? You can have you can have our entire lives. The innkeeper told God to go. God told the shepherds to go. I remember thinking, like as I was sitting on that beach, God, am I really qualified to do anything for you? I'm just an insecure teenager. Like, I, I don't think I have anything to offer you. Like, I imagine that's what the shepherds thought, like, what do we have to offer the God of the universe? We're not a prophet. We're not educated and, and mature and wise. Like, we're just, we're just these shepherds. And God answered me on that beach the same way that he would answer any of us today. Is you're right. We're not qualified. Like, it, what qualifies us is not how old we are, how much we know about Scripture, how long we've been following Jesus or how much we go to church. It, it, the only thing that qualifies us is the cross. The only thing that qualifies me to share God's truth is Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel is everything goes back to Jesus. Like Jesus saves me and the only thing that qualifies me to share about Jesus is Jesus. And so as I'm on this beach and I'm thinking like, God, what can I give to you and I just, I, he starts putting names in my mind of people that he just wants me to share Jesus with. Like, who is that person for you? Like, for me, I remember thinking, my friend John needs to hear about Jesus. And so Jesus, all, all he was asking of me is, give of your time. Give of your relationships. Like, I've put you around people. Like, you've been complaining that you ha don't have enough friends, but I've put people in your life for the very specific purpose of you sharing your faith with them. And I never really thought about it that way. So we can give of our time. We can give our, I think God would have said, you can give of your finances too. But I was 16 and I worked at Dollar General and I didn't have a lot of money. So God's like, it's okay. 
Just give of your time and resources or relationships right now. And so I started this Bible study at my school because we didn't have anything like that at my school. And we started meeting on Wednesdays, and I got four friends together that had been following Jesus longer than me because I didn't really know much about the Bible. And we just started meeting, and I started teaching what I thought was true about the Bible. And sometimes I got it wrong because I was so new into my faith. But it started to grow because what I realized was that my friends actually felt more comfortable coming to a Bible study at my school than coming to my church because it was just like it was neutral ground. And so I got the custodian to unlock the doors every Wednesday morning 45 minutes early and somebody would pick up donuts and we'd just start meeting. And this little Bible study grew by the end of my senior year to be about 50 people that would come. And we didn't really know what we were doing, but that's like the only thing that qualifies us is Jesus, so that's okay. Like it wasn't even about me. It was just my obedience to him. And by the end of my senior year, I saw 12 of my friends come to know Jesus through this little Bible study. And what God was teaching me was it's not about my gifts. It's not about what I think I'm great at. It's not about how long I've been following God or what I think I bring to the table. It's simply about obedience. God might be on the edge of doing something really exciting in your life, and and the only thing he might be waiting for is for you to make more space for him. So two applications. We either respond to Jesus as an innkeeper or as a shepherd. Like, there's no middle ground. We either tell God to go, or we allow God to tell us to go. We either say, no, I don't need anything from you, or we say, yes, you can have as much space as you need. So what would that look like for you? Like, just think in your own life, where do you need to give more space to God? Some of you, like, you haven't given any space. Like, you've been kind of exploring this Jesus thing, and Jesus is right in front of you. And your entire life, like me for 16 years, you you were the innkeeper. You'd say, you can go around back. Some of you, like for the first time in your life, this could be your moment that you say, I'm going to make space for God. But all of us can look at our lives and say, this is where I need to give more space to God. So what is that for you? Like what is that thing that immediately comes to mind that I need to give more space to God? Like I know for me, it's, it's I need to pray more. I need to use the dead time in my day to pray. Because I know we're all busy, but there's dead times. Like when I'm getting ready in the morning, that's like 20 minutes that I could just spend time in prayer. When I'm driving in my car, I could spend time in prayer. Like I was swimming the other day, and I thought, I'm just going to spend this whole time praying as I'm just swimming laps in this dead time in my day. Like I, I remember God saying, you just need to spend more time with me. That's where I need to make more space for God. But what is that for you? Here's the second thing. Following God is always a call to go. God calls you so he can send you out. So who? Who has God put in your life so you can rescue? Who has God put in your life so that you can share what God has done in your life? Who's that person that comes to mind? Because usually, like, whatever that immediate thought is, that's the person. Just like that area of your life that you need more space, whatever that immediately is, like it's usually not hard to find. It's just a matter of us stopping and thinking about it. See, it's not a big moment. A lot of times we expect God to have these big moments. I think the innkeeper, it was so easy for him to, to turn Jesus away because he expected the Messiah, the king, to come in this big, like extravagant moment. Not just on like, like late night and it's just another night and Jesus has arrived in a very humble way. 
with a poor family. Like, I don't think he expected that. And I think a lot of times we expect God to show up in a big moment. And it's not that. It's simply, when are we going to make more space for God? See, God can show up any time in our lives. He's just waiting for us to make more space for him. Where do you need to leave more room for God? Your time, your relationship, your finances. Some of you have had a great, like God has really blessed your family. And just as like our family, whenever God blesses us, we don't think it's so that we can just be richer and have more stuff. We feel that God blesses us so that we can share that with other people. Like maybe God wants to use some of your paycheck to be a significant blessing to his kingdom this Christmas season. What would that look like for you? God loves you too much to stay the way you are. He rescues us so that we can rescue others. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for um, a sweet moment that we could open your word, God. Lord, I specifically want to pray for the people in this room that maybe at the same place that I was at on that beach in Puerto Rico, that they just need to give you space for the first time in their lives, God. God, if, if that's anybody in this room that's just ready to respond to you, I just I pray that they can just acknowledge that I'm a sinner, I'm broken, but you came to save me. That's why Christmas is so exciting. We celebrate your birth and we celebrate your death, which served as a sacrifice for my sins. And the only thing that begins that journey is us for the first time saying, yes, God, I'll make more space for you. As much space as you want in my life, it's yours. God, if there's anybody in this room that they're ready to take that first step, I pray that they do right now, that they say, God, I'm ready to say yes to you for the first time. God, for the rest of us that, that have taken that step, but we just need to make more space, I pray that we can commit to saying, God, this is where you need more space in my life. This is what I'm going to give you more of. This is my offering that you can make something significant out of, God. Lord, I thank you for this exciting season that we can reflect on how good you are, and I thank you for this time. We love you. Thank you. and pray this in your name. Amen.